0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: This week on Red Inca, we chat about the many traditions in cricket and how they have changed over and over and over again. So I brought my friend on to chat all about them. Uh, my name is Neil Mantle, and I'm unemployed. Manners and I spent a lot of time touring together over the last few years, including sharing a hotel room at one stage. So I know what pisses him off, and I know what pisses me off, and it's mostly people whining about the game when they know next to nothing about it. What people often call tradition is usually just what they can remember. And so this episode is clearing up just how much cricket has changed over the years. So Manas, when I said I wanted to get you on this podcast, I said, you know, what are you passionate about? And you have somehow turned that into what are your bugbears? And so we're going to talk about the people in cricket who call themselves traditionalists and talk about how much they love the game and actually have no idea about the traditions of the game and how much it has changed. This game has changed so much, Manners. <laughs> you know, that's once a subject
0: that I have absolutely no indifference to. I either completely... Leave it or I get really hot under the collar. People who say, just leave this game alone. It's perfectly fine. It's been going for 140 years. Why do you want to keep changing it? Well, (laughs) I've got a list which has doubled in length since you and I exchanged notes over this. I've got like 30 key aspects of the game, and only one, only one, maybe we'll save this till the end,
1: that I can find has not been changed at some point. Oh, uh, very interesting. Well, I'm going to go through a couple of the worst ones just off the top of my head, the super sub condition in one day cricket, where they basically came up with a plan where you couldn't use your super sub in any way shape or form to help your cricket team. And I can't remember what period It was, it was I think it was just before World War One, they looked at having nets around the grounds, and it was some sort of extra boundary section that they were looking for. Those are about the only two that I can think of that were Absolutely horrendous. There are some others that haven't worked for many different reasons. But start me off. Where are we going, Manners? Where to start? Where to
0: start? Well, the length of an over. The length of a test match. That's the one that really got me hot under collar just recently when people saying, test cricket has always been five days. Leave it alone. Why do you want to make it four days? And I do get a bit animated about this because, do you know what? As long as conditions are the same for the two teams playing, fine. So the Ashes... Why can't you leave the ashes at five days? That's an iconic test series. Why can't you leave England, India? You know, the really big test series. But if Afghanistan play Ireland in a test series, if they want to play each other and lose a million dollars a game, why would you want them to play it over five days? It's a nonsense, isn't it? I mean, Mm. and and for a scheduling point of view, for countries like South Africa, Sri Lanka, or, you know, the test-playing countries which are also losing money, it makes perfect sense. Thursday to Sunday, three days off, Thursday to Sunday, three test series in three weeks, So I understand the arguments, and you make several very good ones for why it would change test cricket, but think of all the things that have changed test cricket. It's a fundamentally different game. I mean, number of bouncers per over, that's the one that really gets me. You know, in 1991, number of bouncers was limited for the first time because the rest of the world had to find a way to stop the West Indies from beating everybody, (laughs) but... There's so many, so many aspects of the game that have changed absolutely fundamentally. So don't get so hot under the collar about four-day cricket.
1: It's quite interesting. I don't know how many people know that it started as a three-day affair in England. So it was three days in England, five days in Australia. And there was obviously often four-day tests. There were timeless tests. Not to mention the amount of tests that we had where we had a break in the middle, a rest day. What a phenomenal thing to think of now that we literally just went, oh, wait, everyone needs a Tuesday off, don't they? Let's have a break here. Timeless tests, I think, are one of the more overrated concepts only because I don't think we actually had that many timeless tests that went timeless, if you know what I mean. Like, generally, they didn't go on. But the truth of the matter is, I think there's a real concern that England, Australia, and India might turn around to all the smaller countries and go, you're not worth five days. And I can see why people will come up with that. But the idea that cricket is traditionally a five-day sport, well, it's not based in any facts that I can find. In the same way that when the 100 came out, Manners, everyone was so worried about the length of an over. I'm pretty sure when my father played cricket in Australia, he played eight ball overs. Yeah,
0: exactly. You're right. And we had four ball overs as well in the oh, 50s. 30s and in fact we had eight Australia was the last country Australia and New Zealand was the last country to give up eight ball overs weren't they it makes sense I mean you use up a lot of time changing overs I mean you know why not have eight ball overs I think it makes uh, a great deal of sense and in fact have 10 ball overs if we're worried about not getting enough cricket in let's talk about it I don't think that anything should be off limits explore it explore the options because as i said everything has been changed at some point or another and people who get worried about test cricket say that it's dying and we need to to make it more sexy and more interesting and appealing to the youngsters that in itself is a cricketing tradition that's over a century old i mean that's why the tri-series was staged in 1911 england south africa and Australia, because they thought that Test cricket was boring and it was putting people off, so they had to get three teams together. It's brilliant. Oh, names and numbers on shirts—that's the other one that has been getting people <laughs> really, really hot under the collar. And the traditionalists said, you know, oh, it just won't be the same. You know, Test cricket is tradition. I tell you what, Jared, in the sort of late eighties, when I was. Trying to become a commentator. And even into the early 90s, I used to go down to nets and practice matches and watch cricketers for hours and hours and hours so that I could identify them under a broad brimmed sun hat from 120 yards away. And it was a tough skill to master. And I didn't always get it right, but it went down for hours and hours practicing. And I have to say that in the intervening 30 odd years, I have often thought, what an absolute waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> it may be a good skill of what practical use is it so brilliant names and numbers on shirts and you know what where are the traditionalists now i
1: mean all that kerfuffle and and unhappiness about it and like all the other changes it's just been accepted and it's one of those changes that why that really annoyed me was i grew up at the mcg and as you know you are so far from the action even if you're on the boundary you're so far from the action so if you're a way back I remember taking my girlfriend once, and she just couldn't work out who the players were. It was actually it was Victoria versus uh, India. It was a, I took her to a warm up game. That's the kind of romance that, uh, <laughs> that, that that I do. I actually took her because I told her she'd be able to watch Sachin Tendulkar. And then uh, the game was called off before Sachin came in. But that's another story for another day. But essentially, for newer fans, it's a great thing, and for us, it just doesn't matter. I saw Jim Maxwell. Jim Maxwell was so upset about it. He was saying that. um, and we both love Jim, but Jim was basically saying that I hope they haven't brought this in for commentators. And it's like, no, we brought it in because of the amount of new, younger, spectators that we want to actually love this game we want them to know who that person is at all times and to get a better feeling of it and i think that's what it actually does so i think that's a perfect little change that actually could have a long effect on players and it won't matter for you or me or hardcore cricket fans but it might matter for other people the 1910 1911 series i had forgotten about that that is certainly tri-series of test matches what an incredible moment that was Not only that, do you know people talk about the golden era and how cricket was great in amateur? Do you know why a lot of the Australian players didn't turn up to that tour? Man, as they were on strike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, money dispute. Yeah. That was one I noticed a lot when we did Death of a Gentleman. You go on these speaking tours and you go around, and eventually there'd always be this one guy, usually in some sort of knitted vest, who would come up and and say, don't you think everything could be fixed in cricket by just having amateur players play? And it was like, whoa. Me and Sam would race to get to this answer because we both are so passionate about this, even though Sam's from Eton and basically was an amateur cricketer, because we would say, how do you think Rashid Khan exists? If you have amateur cricket, how do you think cricket grows if you have amateur cricket? Essentially, you would have a bunch of posh guys ripping off the system anyway. W.G. Grace was paid for so this whole idea that cricket was ever this holy thing. It's just, I think, I could be wrong, English journalists in the 1950s, just after World War II, looked back and just sort of pretended that all the normal parts of cricket didn't exist and that they, they were, ah, oh, to only go back to those days. It's like, fuck off. Those days were horrible. WG Grace was a terrible fucking cheat. He would have got worse press today than KP. Do you think so? Yes. He was a cheat and a bully. He did things against the spirit of the game almost every game. You know the story about him running out? Was it Sammy Carters? Goes down the wicket to take a piece of grass off the wicket and WG Grace... You can't tell me John Etheridge in The Sun is going to be writing a good column about that. There'd be boots in the journalists these days. It's complete nonsense. So, my point is that amateurism is one of those things that people talk about. And realistically, professionalism has allowed us to have Irish cricketers, Afghanistani cricketers, Nepalese cricketers, and everyone else, and women cricketers. It's a brilliant thing. What else you got on your list?
0: Money was right behind the very foundation of why the game was played. And a lot of people think of match fixing as a modern phenomenon. Well, absolute nonsense. You know, you'd have the sort of Duke of Cornwall's eleven against the Earl of Sussex's 15, you know, where's that from for a start? There'd be stories of the fiery fast bowler being poisoned the night before because the, these two landed gentry had put a massive wager on the game. It was professional, in a sense, from, from the very start. I've got loads, loads on my list. Why don't players play in
1: shorts? Why do we turn our nose up at shorts? Yeah, I think you mentioned this one on WhatsApp. So, you know, I was there when Victoria played in shorts. Uh, No, I didn't know that. This is such a great story. So essentially, they thought that they had to make domestic cricket more fun and they get more spectators. And so Victoria became the Victorian bush ranger, right? And Victoria would play in shorts because people are just desperate to go down to the ground and watch cricketers in shorts. But there's a really funny thing because baseballers wear trousers as well. And it turns out in sports where you slide on hard surfaces... Having trousers on is quite important. So what would happen to the Victorian players? The guys out in the outfield had no problems with the shorts and quite enjoyed it. The bowlers liked it, I think, as well. The guys around the square who had the dive all day would end up with just their knees tore apart. So there is actually, whether we knew this or not, there was a a fundamental reason why we had it. But you're right. There is absolutely no reason why you can't wear shorts when you were playing cricket in certain positions.
0: The Victorians wore shorts in the 70s, wasn't it, or early 80s? It was
1: 93 or 94, the year that they did it.
0: Okay, it wasn't pre Velcro then. They didn't have those buckles on the pads that they. <laughs> no, you wouldn't want would. to
1: be putting those on with shorts. That would have been around the time that Velcro had taken over. Yeah, you're right. Oh my god, do you remember going to training with it with the buckle pads, and you just get it wrong and pick the back of your calf? Yeah, again, another innovation that has managed to move our game on. Velcro. Who would have thought that was one of it? But that shows that, realistically, the big bash is just a, I would say, a follow on from that moment. And Australian cricket at that stage was incredibly progressive. So you had the shorts. Teams weren't really known by their nicknames back then, were they? You know, so you, you had Australian teams doing that. England was still playing in whites for limited overs cricket. So Australia was ahead of the game for that day-night cricket. And then they tried day-night, four-day cricket. So I was at a bunch of games at the MCG in day-night, four-day cricket, where one game that they used a yellow ball and another game they used an orange ball. Now, an orange ball at dusk turned out not the best idea. (laughs) (laughs) Very easy to see during the day and at night, not so much during dusk. But again... That showed that they were trying to get something. And I don't know how you feel about day-night cricket, test cricket, but I'm sure you're probably in favour of it. But for me, it's like if you look at the the TV ratings for the Wacker test compared to the TV ratings for every other test in Australia, it's off the charts because it's in peak viewing time for the Eastern States, so they all tune in. Apparently, not as many people watch TV during the middle of the day.
0: Who knew? <laughs> I, I am very much in favour of day-night cricket and was right from the outset and again you know you remember all that the time when they when they, the talk was of staging the first ones and the people said oh but the conditions will be so different it'll just be unfair and you know just the cricket is a daytime game oh we're absolute rubbish and you and i have done enough daytime test matches to see how conditions change from one day to another or from the morning to the afternoon so playing a couple of hours under floodlights I'm getting suitably hot under the collar again now. Let's go to pitches, shall we? Let, let's go to pitches. Pitch has always been covered. No, no. Not only has the pitch always been covered, it used to be completely uncovered, remain uncovered. It wasn't until 1910 that cricket started covering pitches at the end of play overnight. And then it was only the pitch ends, wasn't it? Mm. And since then, so, so then it was the, the pitch ends, then the whole pitch, then the bowlers' run-ups, then the whole of the square. And then there was a debate about leaving the pitch uncovered and just covering up the bowlers' run-ups. So you would have had fast bowlers running in like Merv Hughes on damp run-ups in some games. And as I said, as long as it's the same for the two teams, the sort of people who concern themselves (laughs) with preserving the sanctity of of records. Do you remember when there was a debate about Ireland and Afghanistan? Well, not even that, Sri Lanka. Anytime there was a new team given test... Playing status people would say like oh no it'll just invalidate all the records teams will be scoring 700 and 800 against them that does amuse me i mean how many records are there in test match cricket that deserve to have an asterisk by them because the conditions were so alien yeah. you know county cricket very different declaration bowling that kind of thing but in all fairness matthew hayden scored 380
1: against a not very good zimbabwe team the day-night thing and then the pitches all plays together because when that happened, Ian Botham and a bunch of people on Twitter and social media and former players all said, oh, we well, have to throw all the records out now because it's a completely different game, right? Now, those people don't look at cricket records all the time. <laughs> they also don't contextualize them in any way, shape, or form. So if you go through that entire history you talked about, you missed out a couple of things of which you'll know a bit about. So basically, up until 1900, we didn't use liquid manure uniformly in cricket. So I think it was about 1895 that it became in. So before that, the reason that it was so hard to bat in international cricket and first-class cricket is literally the ball would hit little chunks of shit on the pitch, right, <laughs> and fly around, right? Now, that's why George Lohman's record is so good, and that's why W.G. Grace is seen as a great, despite the fact he's only got a batting average of mid-30s. It's because a batting average of mid-30s, when you're literally having to face balls coming off shit, is quite tough. You then have the fact that South Africa won their first test series on what surface? Matting. Matting wickets. Pakistan, I think, might have won their first test series again, I think, was on matting. So you've got two teams who basically started out on matting wickets, and then you've got all the rest of the evolution that you were talking through, not to mention the quality of the balls has changed. The quality of the bats has changed. The size of the ground, the general upkeep of the ground has all changed. I hate to say to Ian Botham, but his record looks quite unfavorable compared to George Lohman when you look at day tests. He doesn't quite go to the Lohman level of averaging. What did Lohman average against South Africa? Nine or something? Eight? So you know, you've got all those sorts of things. And then, and then you're right. South Africa won two test series in the first 40 years, and New Zealand won their first test series after 39 years. There's a lot of batsmen around the world who did very well against some ordinary attacks from those two countries in those days, yeah? Yeah. Chicken or pig? No, it would have been cow shit. Oh, no, you're kidding. Yeah, it would have been manure. It would have been chopped up manure, wouldn't it? It was before muckrakers came along. I've actually done a video on this. I went into the archives to find up. So the muckraker was invented somewhere around the mid-1800s when farming became an industry rather than just people doing it on their own. And then it looks like it took until about 1897 for most first-class venues around the world to have access to liquid manure. Amazing. I love that. I love that. Jared, I
0: need to ask you about boundaries, okay? So Mm -hmm. people may not know, many of our listeners may not know, that there weren't boundaries in cricket. They weren't introduced until 1870. But I've often wondered, apparently, the story goes, that what triggered it was a game, an actual game, apparently it's a true story, in which a ball was hit into a tree And the batsman ran 286 times before somebody said enough, or maybe they just ran out of energy. And then, so the MCC were consulted about this because the boundary was basically formed by the crowd, wasn't it? That that big popular game. And then if the ball was hit into the crowd, they would sort of part
1: and allow the fielder to run after the ball and pick it up. But is the 286 story true? I don't believe so. And the reason I know this is so weird, man, is you could not have found a more random expert than me. When I went to primary school, very small community school in the outskirts of Melbourne, our librarian was a cricketer, Gary something. I have to look up his name, but he recently messaged me on Facebook because I wrote about this because he holds the world record for the most runs run in a cricket game. And it's way less than 286. It was... I wish I knew this story better, but I think they ran 28 or 30, hit the ball into the outfield on a big, out-of-suburban Melbourne ground, and councils look after grounds in Australia. It's not like some other countries around the world where the players do, which means the councils don't always get to cut the grass. And in this case, they've smashed the ball out to deep mid or something. The ball's gone in the grass, and these guys have just kept running, essentially, until they were too exhausted to continue to run. So I know that other story is not true, but I think it does come from a very basic truth where they realize that sort of thing could happen and it would start to happen. And I think boundaries came in, but if I'm not mistaken, sixes were quite weird. Didn't you used to, at one stage, get five runs for a six and you had to swap ends?
0: Yeah. They didn't really know what they were doing, did they, uh, when they introduced the boundaries? And and a uh, six was just based on the number of runs they thought that would have been run on average if the ball had been hit that far into the crowd. And often, you know, the the crowd would impinge the fielder and uh the, you know, depending on whether he was the opposition or a home team. So I, I think it was just a it was a random thing. But yeah, it was a five. A six was a five initially.
1: Yeah. So I mean they had no real idea what they were doing. It's funny how so many of those sports kind of got some of the very basics very right. I think four runs and six runs are a very good amount for those shots. Especially I think we're seeing now with T twenty. Like for the amount of risk that you have to take, I think that makes sense. But I suppose this goes back to the change that more traditionalists in cricket fought more than anything else, which is overarm bowling.
0: Yes, indeed. I love hearing you talk about subjects that you're not only an expert on, but passionate about. So go on. Your listeners, actually, your regular listeners will probably know, they'll have
1: heard you talk about it, but go on. So it's really interesting. So basically, cricket was a street game, Yeah. As you said, there was a bit of gambling. Two blokes out the corner at the back of their day would do it. Kids would do it. It was usually one-on-one, sometimes two-on-two. Hambledon comes along and essentially formalizes the legal betting, really, as much as the laws. And at that stage, we then have cricket almost set in a little box. We know what it is. And this bloke called Tom Walker comes along. who was a batsman. I mean, he must have been dull as shit to watch. Some of the stories about his innings are legendary. And he decides to bowl one day, and he just sort of pops his arm up, Neil and tries to bowl, and the posh blokes at Hambledon, having none of it, I'm not sure he even bowled ever again in a game after that. They were so upset with him. 30 years later, people are still doing this, and Lords are essentially trying to fight it. And, of course, the backstory of Lords is one of the most brilliant things. We use this as a holy name. Thomas Lord tried to sell the ground and build flats on it. That's how much he cared about cricket by the end. (laughs) And so they're trying to fight it. So you then have a couple of people involved. One of them was the Willis family. I think that's how you pronounce it. Essentially, he does it in a game, and because he's a posh boy, he can get away with it. He does it a few times, finally does it at Lords, is called for a no ball, is thrown out of the game. Allegedly, Manus, in this case, the story is so great, jumps on a horse and just rides off into the sunset, never plays another first-class game. That part of the story is true. I don't know if the horse is true, but he literally left the ground, was so upset, never played another first-class game, but they kept fighting. So basically for over 50 years, people kept fighting to stop people from bowling, and cricket. And do you know why they did it, Manus? Do you know the fucking kicker of all this was is that they were fat, old, wanky, posh gentlemen who basically use four pound bats and if you came in and tried to wang a ball sideways and we're not even talking about overarm yet they didn't even got that far yet we're talking literally round arm bowling it was scaring the shit out of 45 year old men who weren't athletic enough to play a proper sport in the first place and so they fought it for years it's ridiculous and it held cricket back so much because the minute overarm bowling becomes a thing wg grace invents modern batting and away we go and we've got a proper sport
0: what about the story that overarm bowling was adopted en masse, first of all, by women who played the game because they couldn't bowl
1: underarm because of their whalebone skirts? Yeah, that's all fake.
0: Is that fake, really?
1: Yeah, so John Willis's sister, Christiana, I think her name is. So her part in the story gets infused almost 100 years later by her son when he writes about it in an article. And he doesn't mention the dresses in that article, by the way. It's one of those things. It's a bit like, you know, the original UFO story. If you read back the original person who said he saw a UFO, it's actually a long cylinder, but he said it looked like it was moving like a plate. It's a bit like that with the story. I've checked with fashion historians because you know the sort of person I am. <laughs> to have a look at this. And women in England were not using those kinds of dresses at that time. There's no way she would have had that dress. But you've got to remember this. No women were being trained in how to play cricket properly. She was definitely in the backyard playing with her brother, who goes on to be the guy who rides off on the horse, right? Who was Jane Austen's nephew. That was her nephew. And her niece was the one that you're talking about, Christiana. If you're in a backyard and you've never been taught cricket correctly, I know this with my kids. Sometimes they come up with new ways of like giving me the ball. My son's got this incredible way of almost backflipping the ball to me that makes no sense. If you don't teach someone how to do it properly, there is a chance that she did it. Certainly the dresses are not true. And I would doubt how much she was involved. Also by that point, that whole family, we remember them because they're really posh. Yeah. And because of the Jane Austen thing, in actual truth, there is no doubt that for probably best part of a hundred years, kids on the streets, posh and poor kids have been playing this game and probably bowling with round arm. So there you go. But had we not done that, this game wouldn't exist. It just wouldn't exist as a sport. It would be a parlor game. Well, not a parlor game, an outdoor parlor game. Croquet. It would be croquet. Croquet. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. We go back 150 years,
0: men were playing this game. Wearing cravats and jackets,
1: it wasn't a sport. You could play croquet in a jacket and cravat. You look at the old photos, even when overrun bowling started, have a look at photos of Spoffers (laughs) and those guys. They're standing still with their arm up in the air. They do not look like athletes in, I shouldn't say photos, most of them were paintings, but they're not in any action poses. And look at the footwork of the batsmen. In those very first
0: photographs with the old lime flashes, mm. they had to stand and hold that pose for about <laughs> for about 10 seconds and not move. So, yeah, uh, yeah not surprised there weren't too many action shots. Why don't we let modern cricketers field in gloves? Oh, and we haven't mentioned runners either. The <laughs> gentlemen to whom you refer used to, uh, they wouldn't even pull a hamstring. They'd just get their butler to come and run for them. I think it was, it was our Arjuna Ranatunga's fault, wasn't it, that uh, runners were outlawed in the modern game?
1: I don't know if it was him. I think it, he's remembered as it because he was the one that exploited the rule better than anyone else in modern cricket. Was it Ian Healy who said to him, you don't get a runner for being a fat prick? It definitely it was Healy that said that. I reckon it was Sawag that they were targeting when the actual law changed, if it was any international cricketer, because I think he had started to do it. But you're right, it's, it's a really interesting one too because baseball, I think, probably took that from cricket. They have the substitute runners occasionally don't they that come in and just do running so obviously there was a crossover there but in cricket yeah it was because of the lack of athletes that was a big deal when it changed i think it's actually probably for the better because i think runners were funnier (laughs) <laughs> there's no doubt about that. But there is something quite great about a cricketer who is injured having to bat, I think, at a certain point as well. I know, and I do mean a leg injury. I don't mean with a broken jaw or the Burt Suckliff story or anything like that. But I do mean literally. Don't you think there's something great about a hobbled batsman who can't use his feet anymore? So he just has to slog sweep everything?
0: Yeah, I love it. But I enjoyed runners as well. I'm just saying it's a pretty fundamental change. I mean, that doesn't take too much of a leap of the imagination to say that results of some very important matches would have been different. Not that many, but it's a fundamental change anyway. You see, a lot of changes over the years, recent years have been brought in or motivated by player safety. So I'm thinking about where everyone complains about over rates. I think teams might get on with it a little bit more. If you said this whole thing about lunch being 40 minutes and tea being 20 minutes, actually you carry on until you finish your 30 overs that might be a good motivating thing. But then somebody will come along and say, no, that's health <laughs> and safety, mate. Uh, you won't get away with that. That's uh, That'll never be passed. And a lot of things have been changed, you know, extra water breaks. Um, a lot of things are based on health and safety and potential litigation. On that basis, how many ripped fingernails and split webbing uh, would we manage to <laughs> cut down on if players were able to? to- they use gloves in practice. So...
1: What is it? Is that another traditionalist thing? Oh, you can't have gloves, mate. we have never worn gloves in cricket. Well, I find that very interesting is because we do have protective equipment for fielders, don't we? You can wear shin guards, you can wear a box, you wear a helmet. I can't think of anyone who's ever worn a chess guard, but almost all the other stuff that they can wear, they wear. And we see that as safe. But you're right. I mean, it does make sense. I wonder what kind of gloves you would have to wear that would make those things that much safer. But... Perhaps you, you're right that the ones that they use in the fielding practice could be certainly something that we could look at. Would it not just improve the standard of cricket because people would take more catches? Is that not a good thing? Yes, definitely. And also
0: it would be a bowler's aid. And when was the last time we had something that would aid bowlers? If we had uh, slip catchers with gloves on that, uh, and I'm not suggesting that
1: you use glue, <laughs> Well, players have done that, though. don't Slipfielders use resin and things, don't they, sometimes in their hands? I mean, that is something we used to talk about in club cricket, players doing stuff like that. So I'd be shocked if international cricketers haven't done that, especially so. Aussie rules football, they use resin a lot in their hands. Well, they used to. A lot of them wear gloves now. So you can't tell me that with all the crossover between Aussie rules football and cricket that no Australian slipfielders have gone out with just a little bit something a little bit sticky on their hands. Not much I know
0: about that, but I'd be very surprised if they hadn't. Moving on to the super modern innovations and changes, changes that haven't yet come. In your work as an analyst, you would have do crap load of research on, you know, where the ball travels at which period in the, in the game. And so it just it occurred to me, and this is a conversation I first had with Mickey Arthur when he was coach of one of the international teams. He's one, one of the many. He's now on to be his fourth. It's unbelievable. I remember when it was now. It was between Australia and Pakistan. I said to him, Mickey, on a really flat wicket, in a T20 game, in the last three or four overs, why do you need a keeper? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because particularly if you've got a bowler who's going to be bowling full and straight uh, and he's mostly going to be hitting the, the wickets, and then you might say, well, the bats could just leave it. But then you have your third man or your fine leg very fine. Yeah. And, and yeah. if he does just leave it, then at best they can push for two. Bats and, you know, they're not going to be that happy with two, are they? They're looking for fours and sixes. And that, there's a rule... That says you can't have your designated wicketkeeper, you can't have him, like, standing at gully. So you dispense with the keeper completely. You take the pads and the gloves off, and you don't have a keeper. Not all the time, obviously. You know this has
1: happened. No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. so uh, five years ago, North Ants tried it. Maybe four or five years ago. So you're right. And an analyst like me probably came up with it, or a random cricket person probably came up with it. it. Must have been a very hard thing to convince the team to go with it, but they didn't find it worked. I think if you if you think Andre Russell's batting on that flat pitch, and you can set up a situation where you basically have, as you said, maybe a third man or a final, whatever it is, whatever system you think would work, and at the very worst he's gonna to get two a ball, he scores it more than two a ball. Like Andre Russell legitimately in a normal situation scores at more than two a ball at the death. If he's already 70 off 30 balls and he's in at the death, for me, I'd rather him miss the odd ball and get two runs from that than I would something else. I think he would have a very th- fine third man that should be able to cut it off. You could only do it with someone who's bowling slow balls because otherwise they just go for four all the time. So that'd be a slow ball bowler with a very fine third man and then you just have a umbrella field on the deep boundary of long on mid-wicket and all that, maybe long off as well, out, and you just bowl very slow slow balls at and around middle and leg stump. And perhaps it could work, but North Ends did try it, so it will happen again. One of the things that I think will happen, and I discussed this with some of the Scotland players when I was there, they were like, what's next? And I said, well, for me, you've got one guy at one end. Let's say you've got on Orion and Chris Lynn playing in a game, right? Chris Lynn scores at something like 12 or 13 runs and over against seam bowling. on Orion scores at something like 12 or 13 runs and over against spin bowling. Why would they take a single? If you're facing seam and you're Chris Lynn and you've accidentally hit the ball to deep back up square, why take the one and get the bloke at the other end who's only going to score at six or seven runs and over? Just stay there. Literally just go, I got this end. Make the other team do that. In fact, not only have I talked to Scotland, I tried to get a player at St. Lucia to do that when he was facing a particular kind of bowling. And he was just like, I would be roasted by the press if I did that. And I was like,
0: Oh, who cares? What do you mean? It's a good tactic. I'm
1: like... Anyway, I have tried to convince him. So there are things like that that I think make a lot of sense because, right, in test cricket, what a bowler wants to do is bowl as many balls to a batsman as possible because the bowler is the predator and the batsman is the victim. In test cricket, that's basically how it works out. In T20 cricket, it's almost entirely the opposite. What you really want is if you're a good batsman and you can see a bowler for two or three balls in a row, I am up. It's the baseball rule. That's why baseball rotate through their pitches so much. Now, they've worked out that through an innings, hitters eventually get to the point where they're like, they can work out the pitcher, right? And in cricket, we have that. So if you've got Chris Lynn facing a seam bowler, you don't want him to get a single and to get the bloke at the other end who's going to struggle against seam on strike. And then next over, Chris Lynn's now facing a spinner. That's the last thing you want. You can literally do that. So I think we will actually see things of that nature. And you might get similar kinds of things in test cricket more often, where there will be what we would call the um, Manny Cohen agreed upon single, where Joe Roots facing spin in a test match just have the field a little bit deeper, let him get off strike and let the guy at the other end who's maybe not as good at spin face that and get Joe Root facing what he's not as good at at his end. So you might get little things like that start to come in. Intentional strike rotation fields. I like that, yeah.
0: I just want to remind you here, Jared, that about three months ago, just before lockdown, actually a couple of weeks before lockdown started, I suggested on air with you that using saliva to shine the ball might be banned And you thought I'd been on the hallucinogenic toads, didn't you? (laughs) The reason I I bring that up is to ask about the number of overs after which a new ball becomes available in test matches. That's an area that I'm a little vague and hazy on. I know that it hasn't always been 80 overs, but Sachin Tendulkar came up with a good suggestion the other day, didn't he? With, With bowlers not being able to shine the ball, he said, why not just make the new ball available after 50 overs? And I thought that made a lot of sense. It hasn't always been 80 overs. I, I know that for a
1: fact. I can't remember. I reckon it's been 60, 65, 40. Was 40 the lowest 40? one? 40? I think there's a really low one in there somewhere. Where the, And then they realized that they were really hurting the spinners. And I'm trying to think if it is, it was 40 or 45. It's not one of my pet subjects, but I'm pretty sure there was one series when it was incredibly low. It, it's actually quite tough as a historian to go back and work out what ball the teams were using at any time. So the Safraz-Nawaz game, and he says it's not reverse swing, even though it is 100% clearly reverse swing. It's actually quite <laughs> tough to tell what stage the ball was at because it was quite a long innings. I think if you found the original scorecards, perhaps you might be able to put it together. But online on CrickInfo and Crick Archive and those sorts of things, it's a bit tougher to work out when the balls were replaced in some of those older games. When you think about it, it's a fundamental change. If you think about how much one-day cricket was changed by having the 25-over balls at either end, and when Srinivasan took over cricket, he thought that was prejudice against Asian teams, which you can see because they wanted the ball to be older for their spinners in, in the middle overs. I mean, I would say the fundamental flaw in white ball cricket is the white ball is shithouse and it doesn't <laughs> last. But you know what I mean? So those sorts of things really do affect it. So well, you're also a big advocate for legalised tampering, aren't you?
0: Y- yes, but <laughs> there are conditions. So I think it's absolutely ludicrous that bowlers aren't allowed to throw the ball into old wicked ends to legitimately scuff it up i mean it's completely unpoliceable isn't it it's it's the only umpires i can remember who were actually was ian gould do you remember he'd tease fielders and say uh, i thought you had a better arm than that or you know you've got a problem with your elbow but Mm. that's absolutely definitely should be permitted and i think that you can do whatever you like with your thumbnails. Uh, I stopped short of taking bottle tops and, and and broken bits of glass onto the field, and I certainly, you know, sandpaper wouldn't make my permitted list. But I was absolutely in favour of Kookaburra developing that wax shining stick that they probably are still developing. And I think um, nobody knows what's going to work and what isn't going to work. And mm. but the umpire keeps the the shining material. Perhaps there could be some choices, you know, some Vaseline or whatever. And the umpire keeps it and the bowler gets to apply it for five seconds at the beginning of each over, you know, something like that. I interviewed Mickey Arthur a couple of weeks ago and he sits on the ICC cricket committee, of course, and they came up with all the recommendations for playing cricket in a biosecure environment. And I said to him, Mickey, if the bowlers can't use saliva, and by the way, Jared, I'm still not 100% sure that saliva actually is a polishing agent. I mean, I think it's got more to do with the, the sugar or whatever they're eating in their mouths. But nonetheless, I said to Mickey, you sit on the cricket committee, you would have debated this, and you've decided to give the bowlers nothing, no compensation whatsoever. Why is that? They can't shine the ball now, and then you vetoed the use of, of any shining agent. Why did you do that? And he said, because we're all batsmen on the ICC cricket committee. And he was only half joking. It's true. So what's wrong with picking the scene with your thumbnail? Why is that such a terrible
1: thing? When you say it like that, I can understand why people are like, yeah, it's a natural thing. You know, you, you have a thumbnail, but I think you and I know that international players and first class players use strengthening agents on their fingernails to make them stronger. And there are certain players who will cut their nails in a certain way. So it is like having a bottle top. So that's the problem, isn't it? And maybe we say you can use your fingernails, but a bit like the, the old children's sports where you check everyone's nails to make sure they're not too long
0: before yes, you go out. water
1: polo. It's a, it's a water polo check. Is it water polo? Yeah. I, was, I knew there was a sport I'd seen it happen in, but I think the junior sports, I used to do it a lot too, to stop kids scratching each other. But essentially... If you do something like that, I'm up for it. Whoever comes up with these, uh, and the problem with these committees is, the ICC committee can't be honest, Mattis, right? They can't say, we know that teams have been cheating for, let's see, Safra's 69. <laughs> teams have been getting the ball to reverse swing since 69 consistently, and teams have been cheating to get the ball reverse swing since pretty much throughout that entire... But there are some grounds that just help it, and it's not always illegal methods, but generally... Eighty-five to ninety-five percent of the time, there's some illegal help that is brought in where the ball reverses, right? And the ICC would have to actually come out at a certain point and admit that all of these things have been going on, and they just allowed them to happen. And I think that's part of the reason that they haven't come out and done that. There's no time we've ever played club cricket and you haven't picked up the ball, and someone hasn't picked at the seam. It's just a thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in case people are thinking, what does Jared mean when he says strengthening agents? It's actually the material that horse riders and particularly show jumpers use to harden the hooves of their horses so that if they do
1: clip a jump it doesn't split their hooves and there's also the mountain climbers have a product as well which i think a lot of cricketers also own oh do they really it used to be just super glue in our day didn't it <laughs> i can't remember ever going out on a cricket ground with an opening bowler who didn't have a suspiciously shiny forehead <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah exactly Exactly. Why do you think Alan Donald had that white lightning paint on his
1: face? Well, to be fair, he was probably the only one keeping the white ball together. Uh, the most recent one, of course, is the substitutions for concussion and now potentially for injuries, having uh, a first-class game where you can have more than 11 players, which, of course, has mean so many people are up in arms because they don't know that first-class games quite often had more than 11 players before the 1900s. Yeah, well, exactly. I really, really do
0: believe that the modern game, however you define that, should be an 11-a-side game, other than in the case of concussion. I think that was entirely sensible. And now, of course, don't ask me to explain this one, but now you can, in theory, have a coronavirus, COVID-19 substitute, but it is just an 11-a-side game. You haven't asked me about three-team cricket. South Africa oh at the forefront of innovations – Three-team cricket. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so who's behind this? Is it Mark Nicholas? There's a few of our f- colleagues that are involved in this. Is that right? Yeah. Francois Pinar,
0: or as far as I'm aware, sorry. Francois Pinard is the chief executive of three-team cricket. Mark Nicholas, our colleague at TalkSport, is a shareholder. And do you know what? I think it has a future um, for schools, my problem with it is that it's eight-a-side, and the main reason that six-a-side cricket doesn't work is there aren't enough fielders. <laughs> it's just, And the only six-a-side tournament that has lasted and it remains popular is the Hong Kong Sixes, and that's because everyone gets to go on a massive jolly and go and party for a long weekend, which is fine, which is great. I'm happy with that.
1: Do you have last-man stands in South Africa? It's part of three-team cricket. No there's actually a competition that I think started in Australia and is now sort of filtering around through the UK and other countries around the world which is and it's an actual competition called last man stands although it also has ah. it also has the last man stands rule it is a side cricket and it's actually been quite popular with people finishing work and going to play a quick game of cricket so I think eight is the sort of amount of people that you can cover the field a little bit more. I think you're right. Six doesn't make any sense. I don't know if you've ever played in a six-man team, but you just end up on a boundary 100 meters from everyone else. It's such a pointless exercise. It doesn't make any sense. Whereas eight-man cricket, there's a little bit more of that. So it can make sense. So it's interesting. What I don't understand is, have we not invented a format of cricket where young kids are going to be off the field more often than not because their whole team isn't being used? Or have I not looked at the regulations? You bowl for six overs, you bat
0: for six overs, and you spend six overs in the dugout. That's mm. that's basically it. And you face six overs from each of the other two teams. So it's two innings of 18 overs. I think it'll be quite inclusive, actually. And it doesn't have to be six. You know, you can do it in multiples of 10 and, and have 60 overs rather than 36. And I just think that it works. It, it's a throwback to... Those old school athletics meetings, you know, that was the only sport that I can recall where you'd played against more than one team. And I think it could work, but at international level or at senior first class, even club level, I think it's a gimmick. And I think the company has been trademarked and it's a a money-making tool for uh, the shareholders involved. But I do really, I'd be quite in favor of trying it out at, at school levels because everybody gets to bat and bowl, probably more chance of uh, everybody getting to bat and bowl. And and there's even talk about, you know, rotating the fielders. And it's – I know this will sound patronising, but it's a childish concept, and I mean that in a good way.
1: Mm. It's quite interesting. We're just getting to a point where we are exploring what, what can be done with cricket. So the 100, let's be honest, the way that they released it and organised it was a cluster of fuck of an omni-shambles. But <laughs> – the basic premise of making T20 cricket much different to Test cricket and one day cricket is a solid marketing idea. And there's like really little things that I think we're so wedded to because we're traditionalists. I'd use air quotes there, that won't work well on the podcast, but you understand what I mean. Whereas in actual fact, we want fielders to be at the absolute maximum. We want the Ben Stokes catch and the Sheldon Cottrell catch to be a, a normal event. And at the moment, having worked with cricket teams, you understand the amount of effort that your best fielders have. They spend all their time sprinting from end to end. There's no reason why we can't have 10 overs from one end and then 10 overs from the other end. In fact, the only reason I could find that that wouldn't work is that it might be too intense for an umpire to do 10 overs without a break. But I think they'd eventually get used to that. There are heaps of things that we could do that would be quite interesting. Like we could actually take T20 cricket and make it really hyper-specialist in a way that test cricket and one-day cricket won't ever need to be. So you could pick five specialist bowlers and 10 specialist batsmen and you could do all those sorts of things if, if you're willing to experiment with the game. That would actually improve the quality of the cricket on the field. It would bring in other problems. But the biggest problem now is that no one is really running cricket. And so you have the three-team thing and you have the 10-over thing and you have the 100-over thing. And you're going to have all these different little, you know, subsections. There's a certain point where cricket is spending more of its time eating itself than it is actually growing itself. Yeah. It doesn't have to be 10 overs from
0: one end followed by 10 overs from the other, but five, you know, five, 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 five. There is a lot of changing of ends that goes on (laughs) in cricket and it takes up a lot of time. Even if you just had two overs from each end, you know, just have 12 balls from one end. I enjoy that. A little while ago, you you were talking about shit-ass innovations, like completely... Nonsensical rules, and you wrote something quite whimsical and very critical of the changes being proposed, or they may even have been sanctioned already now in the big bash. What amuses me there is that Cricket Australia can't just say we expanded too much, mm. there's too much of it, people are bored. We need to go back to a manageable size. Six weeks is too long for a tournament. You know, that's just no, 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 no. We have to innovate. Let's get the men with ponytails into uh, our marketing room and get them to come up with something exciting and sexy. I thought that the bonus point for the team ahead after 10 overs was interesting. And I, I thought about that and I can see it being both a complete shower of shit and being quite fun. It's like a mini power play in the middle. Mm. But the really, really stupid one for me is in a game that it's all about speed, fitting it into 90 minutes each innings, keeping it rolling, keeping it. So you have to bowl no balls again, but you have to bowl. Hang on. What was it? What was the thing about wides that they were introducing?
1: So a wide is now a free hit. So how long is that going to take? Yeah. Well, there'll be more balls in the boundary because, I mean, if you look at it purely on a mathematical thing, a free hit goes at 12.2 runs and over and a normal ball goes at eight runs and over. So you've basically completely changed everything. It's so weird because there are actual things that they could do. And I think the 100 tried to do this and just got up its own ass a little bit and maybe didn't have adults in the room. And I say this, Trent Woodhill was in the room, uh, one of my friends. I make fun of him all the time, so it's okay. But I think they needed a couple of adults in the room to literally say, innovation is great and there are things that we can do that can move cricket forward right here, right now. And it will make the game more entertaining and more fun and maybe more captivating for fans right but you needed someone to say every time someone came up with an innovation why are we doing that what is it going to do and what are the ramifications what will change here and literally get a bunch of people to poke holes in it and i think the problem with the big bash changes and the hundred changes is that they're changes for changes sake and for basic excitement and excitement is it, it, it's waning. Cricket games are exciting for many different reasons and for many different times. If you wanna make a change to make the game exciting and better, I'm all for it. But you actually need to think these things through. And I'm not sure at the moment that they are doing that. And and honestly, I don't think that the wide thing helps the game at all. It's one (laughs) of those things, isn't it? There's a bunch of things that you always get. So when The 100 went to Mumsnet and they said, are you more likely to come to this thing that you don't like if it's shorter, right? And my basic thing of always is, yeah, if you could make Russian films, half an hour shorter, I'm more likely to watch them, right? I'm still not going to watch a Russian film. I actually like a lot of Russian films. So that's not a perfect analogy. But the ballet, if you made the ballet 10 minutes shorter and you told me it was going to be shorter, I'd be like, yeah, I'm more interested. I'm still not going to go because I fundamentally don't like the ballet and I don't understand the ballet. I'm not interested in the ballet. Making it 10 minutes shorter is not going to do that. And I think that too many of these changes are things like that. Wouldn't it be great if there were more sixes? So yeah, I don't like that thing. But when they hit that thing really far, how many great games of cricket? There's not a six even hit in. It's looking through those sorts of things. And that's where these problems come about. There are many problems within our sport that we could fix. And instead we've got these two sides going on at all times. So it needs to be more exciting. Nothing could ever change. And so there's actually a middle ground where we could improve things and we don't do anything to do with any of that. I'll give you a perfect example of this. There is absolutely no reason to use the heavy roller on a cricket pitch. Once the test has started, it is supposed to degrade. I like that a lot, and I was wondering if you were going to mention it. There's uh, many
0: proponents of the theory that the roller should not be used at all, just a brush and a sweep. I'd be very happy if the heavy roller was no longer part of the groundsman's kit, although there are occasions where the heavy roller breaks a pitch up, doesn't it, and actually increases deterioration. But that's something that I think is really, really interesting. And so how about, you know, I was saying... If some chess matches are going to be played over four days, and the iconic ones stay at five days, fine, as long as it's the same for both teams. So how about on the world's really super flat pitches, Dubai, <laughs> Abu Dhabi, how about it being an option for two teams to have as a playing condition specific for their series
1: that we won't use any rollers? It would be great. It won't happen. Because the batsmen are captains, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it won't happen. I could see that. I could also see away teams deciding on those sorts of things as well. And I think fundamentally, when we're making all these changes, especially when we're making changes to test cricket, we need to work out why test cricket is still around, let's say, 250 years from its original invention, right? Sort of the start of of what became three-day cricket through to where we are now. The reason is, is it has a lot of variables that other sports can't have. You could almost say it has a bunch of design flaws. You wouldn't invent the stumps. At the size that they are now because it doesn't make any sense you'd make them flat there would be certain things that you would change throughout the game but because of that what cricket should be doing is leaning into those design flaws and one of them is the fact that a basketball court doesn't deteriorate during a game <laughs> right we actually have a sport where fundamentally even more than golf even the greens in golf don't change as much as a cricket pitch can let's lean into that make the fourth innings great again Essentially, those are the sorts of things I think we can do. And it's the same with one-day cricket. We came up with one-day cricket on a whim. We didn't really think it through. And we came up with the five bowlers, right? But essentially what that means is that Scott Styrus becomes a legend of a one-day cricketer because he has to bowl the fifth overs while being a top six batsman. We could actually go, fuck it. We'll put a maximum of, let's say, 14 overs so the guys don't get bowled in a one-day international. So 14 overs, I think, is a fair. Maybe even 13 overs, which I think they did in Australian domestic cricket one year. But then we'll mean the best bowlers will go up against the best batsmen in every game. We don't need bullshit all-rounders that aren't really that good at batting or bowling. There are certain things we can do within the game to improve the game and lean into the great nature of the sport. Instead, we should do free hit wides. Sometimes I'm just like, there are other ways of making the game better. I always look at the NFL as such a ridiculous sport. You do have the absolute best cornerback is going up. That's all that cornerback can do is be a cornerback. And he's going up against a wide receiver who can only be a wide receiver, which means at that one moment, you have the best cornerback and the best wide receiver out on the field, one trying to catch the ball and one trying to stop him. We can do those sorts of things with cricket because we do sort of, to a certain extent, in test cricket. And you can still be innovative, as we've already talked about with the fielding. I want Ben Stokes and Kyron Pollard and Martin Guptill to be at long on for 10 straight overs and do incredible things without them using their energy to go back and forth across the ground. Little things like that we can lean into, and I think that's where we should be going. I like it. You know, I said
0: right at the beginning that the only thing that I could find that hadn't been changed in cricket... What was that? It's been uh, the topic of conversation now, specifically around the women's game, but you mentioned the stumps. That of course, there used to be two stumps and one bale at the beginning. So everything has changed. The ball has changed. The one thing that I cannot find has
1: changed is the length of the pitch Mm. and that must have been 1700s yeah because it's the length of a chain as you
0: know there are 10 Mm. chains in a furlong and it was felt that any other material used to measure the length of a pitch might stretch or or like a rope so the one thing that was consistent was a chain that's 22 yards so, am I right?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we haven't changed. I mean, LBW laws have changed. Oh, yeah, yeah. The way we bowl, the way we play the game has obviously changed massively. The bats, I mean, in fact, the bats are the only other thing that would be almost be almost as old. But if you look at the footage of the original bats, they're basically hockey sticks because the balls yeah. were delivered along the ground. And there's also, of course, at Hambledon, someone turned up with a bat as wide as the stumps, didn't they? And so they had to change the width of the bats. And to be fair, we've changed the laws on bats again recently with the MCC. I think they're a ludicrous idea, but their idea of the diameter of the bats. Players didn't always wear whites. They don't always wear whites now. You might have it there. You might have it. The length of the pitch might be the only thing. Because a lot of people will straight away then say, oh, we always play on grass. And it's like, we don't. We haven't always played no. on grass. <laughs> and we don't always play on grass. There's a, I don't know if you know this. There's an AstroTurf cricket ground in Hong Kong. Because they don't have that many places with actual grass. So there's literally a uh, playing field that is AstroTurf. So, yeah, I think you might have it there. I mean, of course, the minute we put this podcast up, someone's going to come up with another one. That was the idea. In the comments. That was the idea. Now, just before you go, you have released an audio book of your original book, which I have somewhere downstairs. The title of your book is The Greatest South African Cricketers Ever. No, it's not called that. Which, no, which one did you do? You've released a lot of books. There's the Beer Drinking book. The Beer Drinker's Guide to Losing Weight. Good luck finding that one. <laughs> That's like 25 I've got it. That's years. it. Oh, have you? Of course oh, yeah, I, I think I gave you one last time No, I had not already. I, I don't know why I have it. I think I might have found it. You know, when you're in um, Headingley, they have that great old couple that run the book-selling stand. Out near oh, the rugby yeah. stand. I always pick, like, random books by my friends who uh, – it's always the books that my friends would be embarrassed at. To actually uh, be mentioned, like the beer drinking one. Although I'm sure you're proud of that. <laughs> it's the Proteas.
0: Twenty years, twenty matches. It traces uh, South Africa's first twenty years post isolation, from Clive Rice's uh, three match to ODI tour to India, to the, the ninety two World Cup. And it, it's not just twenty matches. It's uh, it's pretty much a, a history of the the first twenty years. So, and of course, next year it'll be thirty years. So I'll have to do an update. But during lockdown, I did two constructive things. I learnt how to make cider because there was an alcohol ban for two months of our lockdown. And it was more on principle, really. And it was totally shit. Um, and it hardly had any alcohol in it. It was quite tasty. It was sort of like a lightly sparkling apple juice. And I recorded my book and uh, produced an audiobook, which... Which was very therapeutic.
1: I loved it. Every other white person in the world during lockdown came up with a podcast and you took it to an old school level and went audiobook. <laughs> there are a lot of podcasts out there, aren't there? Yeah. Neil Manthorpe, thank you very much for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure, mate. Hopefully see you uh, sometime soon. Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest at Neil Manthorpe on Twitter. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere and everywhere. Please tell everyone about it. We're really trying to get this podcast out to as many people as possible. The fact this podcast exists is because of the people who support us at Patreon. So thank you so much to all of you. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston pleases your ears. And our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Cricket. Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps.